listening to episode number 30 of the Podcast Method. I'm Dan Benjamin, and this is the show where I answer your questions about podcasting, recording, audio and video equipment, software, mic technique, post-production, pre-production, workflows, and so much more. All of your questions will be answered here on the Podcast Method. That's right. I'm glad to be here today. We're in the midst of this uh, COVID-19 coronavirus situation. And a lot of you have written in and I've seen a lot of people writing about how this will affect the podcast industry. Forget healthcare, forget schools, forget cities. They're asking me about how it will affect podcasting. But it's a good question. Your first response would be, well, everybody's going to just listen to tons more podcasts, right? Why wouldn't they? They're, They're home now. They're bored. They can't hang out with their friends at work. They can't hang out with their friends in real life. You're socially isolating yourself. So podcasting should really shine. This should be podcasting's moment, at least in 2020, to really bring people together. And that's what I think is happening. But I've also heard from other people that they think that maybe the opposite will be true, that people will listen to fewer podcasts. Why? Why would people be listening to less? That didn't seem to make sense. But if you think about it, it might be true. A lot of people are listening to podcasts on their commute but they're not commuting right now if they're working from home. A lot of people who are working from home suddenly find themselves with new workmates. Maybe you have a roommate or a spouse or a family member or kids, and they're now making it impossible for you to listen to anything unless you socially isolate yourself from them. I don't know if you should do that or not, but people are. So what does that mean? That means what, you're putting your headphones on now and just sitting quietly in the room while your kids are like, dad, come play with us. Maybe, maybe you are, maybe we should, I don't know. But it is an interesting side to consider when you think about that. Are we all sitting here listening to more podcasts or listening to fewer podcasts? I would imagine that a lot of people are like me and that I I can listen to a podcast while I work, but I find I tune out when I do that. So there's an argument for listening to music maybe instead of a podcast while you work. But I know so many people that sit and listen to a podcast while they're working because it makes them feel like they're not alone. And I think that's a great reason to listen to. But I'd be curious to hear if you find if you're listening to more or less podcasts, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Dan Benjamin. Make sure that you, whenever you talk to me about this show, if you don't mind, please use the hashtag podcast method on Twitter. So I make sure not to miss it for the show. I would hate to miss your feedback. I would hate to miss your question. And that's a really easy way. And maybe the only way for me to like sort through all of the questions and responses that I get in relation to this show. Of course, you can also go to podcastmethod.fm and click contact. And if you do that, you can type me an email. That's the best way to ask a question. And I love those. So please keep them coming in. Uh, But Twitter works as well. And also I want to thank everybody who's supporting the show on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash podcast method. Please consider supporting the show. If I provide you with even a tiny little bit of advice or help or answer a question that you had, that is the best way to thank me. I do this for a living. This is how I make money. And your support directly pays my salary and lets me pay my bills. It's a direct relationship between me and you. And every penny really does count. So thank you to everybody who's doing that. And I'm working on some really cool, well, I, th- I think they're really cool, bonus stuff for the people who are supporting me. So thanks again to everyone who does that. 
And uh, if I've helped you along the way and you're supporting me, uh, that's just awesome. So thanks very much, truly, to everyone who does that. I have a little bit of news, not a lot, uh, because we're inundated by news and I don't want to do that here on this show right now. But one article that came across that was actually talking about the coronavirus is uh, iHeartMedia CEO. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this in the show notes. Show notes are going to be at uh, podcastmethod.fm slash 30. That's where you're going to go to find these. Uh, but it's not a long article. But uh, the, uh, their CEO, uh, Bob, Bob Pittman, came out and said, oh, we haven't seen an impact yet when he was talking about how it's affecting uh, their podcasts. And, um, and he said that the, the company was watching the situation very closely. And he says, we are a business that is about companionship. So in times of need like this, people are hanging out with us more and they're looking to us for information. We're not in the business of providing entertainment programs. We're in the business of providing companionship. We keep people company. Interesting way to explain it, isn't it? That he doesn't see it as an entertainment company. He sees it as a companionship company. It's like I was saying before, I think there are a lot of people that listen because they want to feel like they are there with a friend. They're hearing a friend's voice. I, I think I, we all enjoy that. I remember not that long ago, I started rewatching a TV show with my son. It was, uh, it was Star Trek Next Generation. He was old enough. He wanted to watch it. It was a show that I loved when it came out. And turning it on and watching it with him, I felt like I was revisiting my old friends, you know, these people that I had not seen for a long time, but that I remembered. I remembered them and what they were doing. And it was like revisiting friends. It was like meeting your old high school friends in a way. And I find that's the case whenever I watch a movie that I haven't seen for a long time or a TV show like TNG. I'm like, wow, I remember these people. I can hang out with them again. And I think there's a lot of that in podcasting too. If you get used to hearing your favorite show, it comes out every Tuesday. Uh, you know, you look forward to that. You start to look forward to it. And like, wait, where's the show this week? They released, they're releasing on Wednesday. What? You're messing up my schedule. So I think that's a very realistic thing. And I, I thought it was a neat way of expressing it, that we're creating companionship, not entertainment. Uh, one of the things that I've been working on is uh, is a call-in show. I used to do a call-in show called Quit, where I helped people know it was not about smoking cessation, which everyone thought it was. It was about uh, quitting your job and starting something awesome. And I did that show for quite a while. It, it wound up being a really, really big show in download numbers and live listeners. And uh, I we used to take calls from listeners. I built my own homegrown system to take calls from listeners. I shouldn't say I built it. A friend of mine who's a really good developer built 80% of it and I, I tacked on some things to it, but uh, it was a really neat system uh, and it was very much like what they would use in a regular call-in studio, uh, you know, like in a, in a radio station. Uh, but I haven't, I didn't keep up with it and some of the, uh, I guess, vendor services that it used went out of business or changed their model. So rather than rebuild it again, I've been looking at different options for, adding call-ins to my own show. And I mean, there's tons of ways to do this now. I'm not talking about having a single guest call in. I usually do that with something like Skype. And actually, I'll be talking a little bit more later in this episode about uh, some other technologies because somebody asked me about it. So I'll be addressing that. But I'm talking about, and I'm also not talking about connecting your phone, like your iPhone to your mixing setup. I'll talk about that. I'm working on a video about that actually. Uh, but I'll talk about that in the future. 
Uh, but I'm talking about a traditional call-in system like you might find in a radio station where you might have three, four, five, 10, 20 people calling in. And it works pretty simply. I don't know if you all have ever called into a talk show or radio station before, but when you call in, they usually have a phone screener who says, hi, what's your name? And you say, oh, I'm Dan. And what do you want to talk to the host about? Oh, I wanted to ask him a question about this. Okay, great. And then they put you on hold. But while you're on hold, you're hearing the radio show live. Uh, and that's because there's an effect where if you're playing the show, uh, there's a slight delay. Radio stations use a delay. And even if it's a podcast that's streaming live, there's going to be a delay there as well um, in, in, how qu in, in the person's voice as they're recording it versus what you're hearing over the radio or over your podcast stream. And the result of that is a, this weird echo effect that begins an a infinite loop where you hear the person's voice echoing back and then that gets picked up and replayed and it's horrible. So you don't want to do that. So they play the audio for you over your uh, over your phone that you've dialed in with. And in order to take people's calls, they just pick the next person in line and they say, OK, Dan, you're on the air. And then you're talking directly to the host and they drop the call, which we call dumping in that business, dump the call. So... There are a few different solutions as to how you might want to uh, do this these days. There's a couple that I've looked into. I put them in the show notes and I'm just starting an experiment with them. One is just called Call In Studio, really a basic name for a service that's been around since I think 2011. Uh, but it's a really good service. They all cost money, of course, but it allows people to dial in and do exactly what I just described. There's another one that I, was brought to my attention recently by um, uh, a friend of the show, John C. Dvorak. Uh, who uh, asked me what I thought of it. Uh, it's called High Brip. H-Y-B-R-I-P. High Brip I-P, I guess. Uh, and I think this one looks really cool. Uh, it it just also costs money. But I was curious if anybody has used either of these services or if you've used another service to do this kind of thing. Again, I'm not talking about having one caller on a guest or having one line where people can call and then you ha dump them and then they, another person calls. I'm talking about a true system where they get online, they're hearing, they're hearing the show, you can screen, you can drop, all of that stuff. So if you've used something like that, and I doubt many of you have, but uh, it's a long shot, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. And of course, I'll be sharing mine as I'm working more on the call-in show and I pick a solution, but your input is greatly valued, so I appreciate it. Uh, and then there's one more piece of news that I wanted to cover today, which is uh, on uh, MediaPost.com. It's a commentary and the article by Jonathan Gill is entitled, Why the Podcast Advertising Market Has Not Yet Reached Its Full Potential. And uh, uh, the uh, author, Jonathan, goes and kind of walks us through what the advertising business was in, in the olden times uh, and how they like to, to track these days, but basically the short answer is measurement. There isn't a lot of confidence yet in the way that we measure downloads or listeners or listener engagement. And it's very hard to do that because even if you go through all of the trouble for things like IAB to, you know, have IAB compliant stats where we know downloads, we still don't know plays, right? So just because somebody 100% a unique individual downloaded your show. We know we can we can pretty much say that now with our download numbers. Uh, and I've, I put a lot of time into those stats on Fireside too to make them IB compliant and and just really good in general. So we can say, okay, that that download's a real download. That's a real person doing a download. 
we still don't know what they did with it after. Now, there are ways to get around that, but it would depend on the podcast clients to measure those things. And it would depend on the podcast clients to report those back to the podcasters. And there's no good mechanism to do that, even if the podcast clients wanted to integrate that feature into their software and then report it back to us. I mean, there would need to be a system to do that. And there's not a lot of pressure on those people. And, then, and, and a lot of the people who make podcast clients, you know, look at what's happening with some of the apps that are out there now. They're trying to build their own platform and ecosystem. And the more that that happens, the less willing they're going to be to share it outside of that ecosystem. You know, I can definitely see a time where, oh, well, if you want your stats, you've got to use this player, you've got to use this podcast client, you've got to use this platform behind the scenes. They all integrate together and that's the only way to get those numbers. But we guarantee you that our numbers are perfect. That's the trend that we're seeing. So beware of that. Beware of that. Uh, one other thing I'd like to mention a lot of people have asked me, because they're working at home now, they want to do video conferences or they're doing more of that kind of thing because they're socially isolating and working from home. And they're saying, I don't just want to shout into my MacBook's microphone. I don't want to use an iPhone headset to do this. I want to sound better. And maybe you're starting your own podcast. Maybe podcasting is going to be even more of a thing because people are making podcasts and sharing them with their friends. So how do I sound good without breaking the bank? I get this question so often. Well, there are so many microphones out there. There are so many starter microphones out there. But I'm going to tell you about something really basic, really affordable, and yet a little bit upgradable as you go forward. I used to recommend mics at this level and I've been hesitant to for a long time because everybody's voice is so different. There's never going to be one microphone that's going to sound good for everybody. But if your goal is to just get in there and up your game, right, make everything better. You remember some of the tenets of podcasting that I said are really important. One is having a, a good microphone that, uh, that is dy a dynamic microphone so you can isolate just your voice and eliminate a lot of the background noise. Hey, if you're working from home, you probably aren't in a podcasting studio. You're probably sitting in a spare bedroom, maybe at the dining room table or the kitchen table, and there's going to be noise. It's your neighbor's dog. It's the air conditioner. If you live at home with kids, you've got kids making noise. You know, your spouse is in the other room uh, watching a, a TV or listening to a podcast, right? A good way to isolate a lot of this is to get a dynamic microphone. But it doesn't make sense if you're not trying to do this as a, like, a real thing quite yet. It probably doesn't make sense to invest a few hundred dollars into, you know, your favorite uh, preamp or something like that. So we're now talking about a microphone that can plug directly into your computer. Okay, so it's got to be dynamic. It's got to be able to plug directly into your computer. Uh, it's got to be portable. But what if you think you might like this stuff and you might want to upgrade one day? You might want to not have to buy a new microphone when you do decide to get a nice preamp and you want to sound a little bit better, I've got just the thing for you. It's the Samson Q2U. It is a USB microphone. It is also an XLR microphone, which means you can start out today, right now. You get this thing out of the box. You plug it into your computer over a USB cable, and you're recording. And one of the other things that's so critical, I won't talk about it again on this episode because I have talked about it so many times, 
is the importance of monitoring yourself. You want to hear yourself as you talk with zero latency. And the only way to do that is by plugging your headphones into either a preamp, which I'm telling you not to buy right now if you're in this situation, or a microphone like this that has a headphone port right in it so that you can plug your headphones into the microphone and hear yourself speaking. Wait a minute, how are you going to hear the people you're talking to? That's the beautiful part. This microphone is also an output device. So you set this as the output device in Skype or whatever software you're using to talk to the other people. And you hear them along with yourself over the microphone. It's genius. And it's so much better than a Blue Yeti. Don't let me hear that you have a Blue Yeti. If you have one, I'm sorry. Fine, use it. Great. But if you're on the fence about something to buy, don't buy that. Please. They're not, they're not what you want. Better than that, Samsung Q2U, fifty nine ninety seven on Amazon, sixty bucks. Get your boss to pay for it. Sixty bucks. Anyway, it's in the show notes. Go get one of these things. I love them. I have one, and it's what I use. And I'll tell you what, I've used it on different shows before, and nobody's ever noticed. I'm not saying it's as good as my Shure SM7B. I love this guy, but with a little bit of EQ and post production. I can make it sound really close to the point where, like I said, nobody has noticed. Or at least I haven't said so. Now, I've got a bunch of questions, a bunch of questions that I wanted to answer. So many great questions have come in over Twitter. Most people did not use the hashtag podcast method, so it took me a lot longer to find them. So if you're going to ask me, and I need you to ask me, please just put that hashtag on there. It makes it so much easier. All right. And you know how I have a trouble with people's names. So forgive me. Uh, Michael Bierenbach on Twitter says, uh, what kind of mic do you think they are using in the Rose Garden? It's very good. And uh, it, I, I have an answer. And I, before I read the or tell you my answer, uh, one of uh, one of my co-hosts on another show who knows that I don't love the blue snowball, Keith Ruckus, he says, it's a blue snowball in reply on the tweet. No, it's not a blue snowball. In fact, and I was wrong in the, <laughs> in the reply that I, I gave him on there, but I, I knew better. The answer is it is the Shure SM57. Shure SM57, it is a wonderful microphone. It is very, very sturdy. It, they use it a lot to mic instruments, uh, especially like percussion instruments like drums. They also use it for electric guitars. Um, it, it, it's really, really good. I've heard, I know tons and tons and tons of people are using it for floor toms and kick drums and things like that. And, uh, and because uh, of its pattern, it doesn't pick up a lot of background sound. There's not a lot of feedback when you use these things. And uh, I, I have a note here. Every U.S. president since Lyndon B. Johnson delivers their speeches through the SM57. Uh, it says here in my notes, it became the lectern microphone of the White House Communications Agency in 1965, the year of its introduction, and remains so. So not only that, but if you Google this, which I did for you, uh, they sure the company that makes it, which they also make the SM7 here that I'm talking to you through, uh, they have a webinar that's 50 minutes long, which is basically like a PowerPoint presentation showing 
this microphone and the history. So if you're a real microphone nerd like me, you're going to want to watch this thing. You'll notice that most of the time there are two of these microphones in a special mount with special little L-shaped cables, which I love, that, uh, and, and, and the A2WS windscreens on them. And they have these up on the uh, podium. And of course, there's two. Why is there two? In case one fails. Has one ever failed? I'd be curious to know. I don't think so, but they always have two. And, uh, and yeah, so that's the microphone that's used. Now, should you get this microphone? I know people that use it, but if it was me, I would get the Shure SM58 before I would get the SM57 for the kinds of applications that, uh, that, that we're doing, which is, you know, a little bit different, but I'll put that in the show notes too. Why not? Now it's there. Boom. That easy. I'm going to brag about, uh, Fireside a little bit. There's a really cool feature, the bookmarklet feature. So if you're a Fireside user, you have this bookmarklet. It lets you add uh, links to your show notes. And that's what I'm always using here. So whenever I'm adding something to the show notes, I just grab this little bookmarklet. It sits up in the bookmark bar. I highlight some text and click it and boom, it adds it automatically with the text that I've highlighted into the show notes. Genius. Okay, more questions. Here we go. Oh, I have a, a group of questions that came in unrelated to each other talking about post-production and things like that. I'm going to answer all of them at once as my last question on today's show. So if you're one of the people that asked about that, your question will be answered. Before I get to that, uh, Redbeard Mateus, uh, who is a longtime listener, says, I know it's a long shot, but since my migraines have stopped me listening to most podcasts, is transcribing prohibitively expensive? I notice only a small number of podcasts do it. That's a great question. There are a lot of transcription services out there and more and more of them geared toward podcasts are coming out. Some of them these days are using like AI and machine learning to transcribe. And so I've seen some companies come out where they actually have two different rates for how much it costs to, to make a transcription uh, of your podcast. One that's like pretty cheap if you're using the machine learning or the, uh, the AI to, to voice recognize it. And one that's more expensive if you have people doing it. I haven't tried the, uh, you know, the AI uh, voice recognition software to transcribe a podcast, but I have used services before in the past, not just for podcasts, but for back in the old days when I used to do screencasts, uh, we used a service uh, to transcribe some of that. Uh, so it is expensive. And, and that's the thing is it, it costs a lot of money. And most podcasts and podcasters are not making money from their shows at all. And if they are, they're not making very much. I know a lot of podcasters that if they have a Patreon, they're only making $50 a month. It's going to cost probably 50 bucks to get one episode transcribed. So yeah, I mean, it does really come down to a cost thing for most people. And I actually am opposed to having inaccurate transcriptions instead of accurate transcriptions. And what I mean by that is, if you're going to the trouble to get a transcription made and it's not 100% accurate, then I feel like that's not a good compromise. I feel like it should be exactly what was said and not a machine's attempt to transcribe what we said. So that's my opinion on that, but that's a really good question. Uh, Bruno Pinto asks, what's the best way to promote your podcast? Is Twitter the best option or perhaps Reddit for a more focused audience? Great question, Bruno. If you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter or Facebook, then promoting it there is a very, very good way to do it. If not, it's not going to get seen. I've heard different things. I've heard that 
a fourth of your audience or even an eighth of your audience on Twitter, for example, is going to see your tweet. Um, so that means even people with hundreds of thousands of followers are not going to have a lot of people see a tweet. I would be much more interested to see how many actionable tweets, such as clicking a link, are actually clicked. It's not that many. I can tell you that when I run a survey, even if it's a silly fun survey, I get a few hundred responses and I've got close to 40,000 followers currently on Twitter. That's not a lot of engagement if you think about it. It's really horrible. Um, really horrible. So I don't really think Twitter is a really great way to promote anything unless you've got a huge, huge audience or unless you do the thing that a lot of influencers do, which is uh, tweet about it a lot. The problem is if you have people who are really engaged with you, then they're going to see you tweeting the same content, or even if you change the way you're tweeting it over and over again, and they're going to get frustrated. That works to get exposure to the large part of your audience, but it's, you know, it's tricky. Uh, as far as Reddit, Reddit's not bad. I've actually advertised on Reddit for a podcast as an experiment and it didn't work. It didn't do very much. Uh, very, very, in fact, this, well, this was a while ago, but in fact, it, I didn't even use up all the money that I had allocated to that. They basically came back and said, well, it, you know, we didn't get enough responses. Maybe your mileage will vary. Um, and it certainly can't hurt to try it, but I'd be curious, Bruno, if you do try the Reddit, uh, method or Facebook ads or whatever people would do over there, I'm not on Facebook, uh, then it would be very interesting for me to hear what kind of results you get back or anyone out there who's tried these things. Generally speaking, every time I read about somebody trying to advertise their podcast, the results are, it wasn't worth it. There is a new kind of thing people are doing, which is exchanging ads for their podcast with other podcasters. I think that's a very interesting idea because if you're listening to a show about uh, ghosts and that's promoting a show about werewolves and then the werewolf shows promoting the show about ghosts, well, that's kind of cool. What I don't like is when people drop an entire episode of another show into their podcast feed and then maybe the other podcast does the same for them. I have some ideas about better ways to do this, things that I'll be implementing within Fireside, but Right now, I, please don't do that. I don't I don't want to download your podcast and think there's a new episode and it's just an entire episode of another show. I'm not, I say thumbs down. Don't do it. Darren Dykes asks, in a follow-up to my question last episode about rating in Apple and Spotify, do Android users need an Apple sign-on to comment in iTunes? Wondering how many reviews and ratings are from Android versus Apple folks. Yeah, uh, if, if you want to leave a comment uh, or review rather, in iTunes, yeah, you've got to have an iTunes account in order to do that. There's no two ways about it. You've got to have that. It doesn't really matter how you're listening to that podcast. If you want to leave that review, uh, yeah, you've got to have an iTunes account to do it. Peter Pope asks, I've recently made the switch from using free software, Audacity, to Logic Pro for recording and editing, and I'm finding it a bit unwieldy for editing. Do you have any tips and tricks that make logic more podcast editing friendly? I am getting this question a lot. And so I have decided that the best way to answer it is to make a video about it, like how to edit your podcast in logic or how I edit it in logic. Uh, it's it. This kind of thing is so visual that it's really, really hard for me to answer 
in a podcast. I want to show you, Peter. I want to show you how to do it. Tips and tricks are best shown for something that's as visual as this. And there are a lot of people who are making a switch, whether it's from Audacity or GarageBand uh, to Logic. If you're a Mac user, there really isn't better software than Logic to edit a podcast with, in my opinion. There are people who are really, really good at Pro Tools. I used to be one of those people, and I'm probably still good. I just haven't used it in a a long time. But there are better solutions, and in my opinion, Logic is better because it's it's a... Mac app all through through and through. And it's very affordable. You can install it on, as long as you're only using it on one at a time, you can install it on every Mac you own. That makes it so easy. It doesn't have a physical key like some versions of uh, Pro Tools have. It's just an all-around great solution. So Peter, my answer is yes, I do have tips and tricks, but the downside is I'm, I'm not going to talk about them here. It's just not the right place to do it. If you can hold out a little longer... I hope to have this video out soon, uh, and I hope that it helps you. Stefan Constantine writes, What do you think about video podcasts? Given the choice between hearing people talk and watching them talk, I tend to watch more often than not. I just like the option. Also, what's your view on people who listen at rates other than one, uh, 1.5? He says 1.5 is my default for everything. I will take your first part first. Uh, Stefan says that given the choice between hearing people talk and watching them, he wants to watch them. I can tell you that that is atypical. We, I used to do a video version of every episode of every one of my podcasts. It made for a tremendous amount of hard work and editing, and it never paid off. If I got 50,000 downloads of a podcast... I get 500 views of the video. Now, this was before the huge video thing. Everyone wants to watch everyone on YouTube situation that we have now. But I can tell you that other podcasters that I know in this industry who have spent a tremendous amount of time, effort, and money on making videos of their podcasts, now I have been told in confidence, now regret it or now feel that it was a waste of time or is a waste of time. I love videos and the video medium. And I love YouTube and I love people who put their stuff on YouTube and who do video shows of it. And I am like you, Stefan, I love to watch people do the shows, but that's not how most people are consuming. Uh, Most people are not going to watch it on YouTube, but there is some value for discovery. And that's something I thought, why would you take an audio podcast and just put it on YouTube with just the logo there? It's a feature I've I've built into Fireside. It's coming out soon that automatically takes your audio podcast and makes a video for you and publishes it to YouTube because that's what people want to do. And I was like, why? Are they getting that many listens? No, it's more for discoverability. It's yet another way that you can get your podcast out there and make it findable for people. If you're publishing your show, whether it's you talking in front of a video or just the logo of your, you know, your podcast cover art, it's going to, I think, be one more channel for you to get it in front of people and get a, get more exposure because YouTube is where a lot of people are. And if you were to, we're talking about coronavirus, right? If you were to, if you were to be crazy enough to type coronavirus into YouTube, you'd get a billion results from it. But if you were talking about it on your podcast, you'd be in one of those search results. It's another way for people to find out about your show. Second part of your question, Stefan, What's my view on people who listen at rates other than one speed? In other words, are you listening at one and a half or double? 
I, I like listening at 1.0 because that's the speed the person was talking in. And I liked conversations. I like listening to people talk and I like hearing people the way that they actually sound. I don't think it's natural to listen to things faster than that. So I never do it. But if you want to do it, if you've got so much on your plate that you can't listen at the regular speed of someone talking, well, listen at one and a half. That's that's your call. It's your choice. I'd Like I've said before, I don't like it, but I'd rather you listen at double speed than not listen at all. So if that's how you got to listen, then I forgive you. No big deal. We can all be friends. Jamie Lopez asks, is there a benefit to joining or even creating a podcast network versus going it alone as a show? In the olden times, a few years ago, I would have said, yes, it will make a difference. It will help with exposure. It will help get new people to listen to your show. It lends a certain degree of credibility to your show if the podcast network has a lot of credibility already. When I started 5x5, five five, I my goal was never, I'm going to make a podcast network of shows. Maybe it should have been, but it wasn't. It was, I'm too lazy to set up a different website every single time I want to launch a new show, so I'll just make one website where they can all live, and I guess it's a network. That's how I came into it. I never started out saying, I'm going to create a content network. I'll tell you where it does make sense or why someone might want to do it. If you are a podcaster and you are working on shows and those shows are tied together with a certain theme and you really want to corner that market or you want to keep all of your shows together as a place for people to go to get that kind of content. And I'll give you an example. Jim Harold, friend of the show, Jim Harold does his paranormal podcast and he has a whole network of shows that all focus on that kind of thing. And he's really established himself in that space as a guy who does those kinds of shows. So putting them together in a network makes sense to me. But if you're talking about Ruby on Rails development and you're joining a network and the other person or the other shows in the network are about uh, F1 racing and uh, productivity, then no, it doesn't make sense for you to join that network. It's not going to help you and it's not going to help them. It's just not. But if you're talking about Formula One racing and there's another show about Formula Two racing and another one about NASCAR, well, now I'm starting to see a theme. And so, yeah, it might help you to be a part of that network, even if it's just, it becomes a destination for people to go where they're like, well, I listened to this one podcast about car races. I'm going to go and listen to this other one that's coming from the same place. That makes a lot of sense. Like what Bill Simmons did in the sports space and is now expanding. So yeah, in that sense, it, it might make sense. But I don't want people to think that just because you join a network and there's a show on that network that gets 100,000 downloads every episode, that you're going to get 100,000 downloads every episode, even if they promote you. But in that situation, uh, them promoting you is going to get people to find more about, to find your show, regardless of whether it's on that network or not. So probably not. I guess is the short answer. Uh, Josh Liston asks, the cost benefits of going clean over explicit and vice versa. Shows like Back to Work, which is a show I do with Merlin Mann, are mostly pretty clean, but the occasional cuss word does slip out. Do you get any pushback from your audience on those episodes? Josh, no cuss words should be slipping out there. Has that happened? If it has, you better tell me. It means I, I didn't do my job and bleep them or cut them out. Although... There have, now that you mentioned it, there has been once or twice when maybe that has happened. Here's the problem. And let me, let me take a step back. When iTunes integrated podcasts, they, they came out with the explicit tag. 
there can be a lot of pushback. And I've even heard stories of people getting uh, at least temporarily suspended from or kicked off of iTunes because they had an episode that was not explicit, uh, that was explicit, that was not marked as explicit. That can be a big problem. So don't do that. If you have a cuss word in your episode, always, always, always mark it as explicit. Having an episode or an entire podcast where there is cursing, on a personal level, I don't care about that. But what it does is if, if it's explicit, mark it as explicit, and that will let kids or parents know my kids shouldn't be listening to this. Or if they're personally offended by explicit content or curse words, this will allow them to avoid the show. But there can be other impacts from doing that. There are certain listing services or other people that might not want to listen or recommend your show because it's explicit. So you just need to be really careful because you're going to be limiting your audience. Just know that. And explicit doesn't just mean curse words. It can mean content too. And the guidelines for what are explicit and what are not explicit content or words um, vary. They vary from iTunes to to Spotify to a bunch of other things. So your best bet is if you're just worried about curse words, bleep them. Then you can... You know, no, nobody's going to be offended by a bleep and then you can keep your content everywhere and it'll be everywhere and you don't have to worry about it. If, however, you're talking about a show, uh, doing a show that has actually like what might be determined explicit content, even without cursing, you've got to market as explicit, but you already know what you're doing when you're doing a show like that. And you know that there's a lot of markets that won't be interested in promoting or carrying or sharing your content. So it's just a decision you have to make as far as cost benefits I haven't seen it affect sponsorship uh, before. We have shows where there are cursing and shows where there aren't or explicit content and, and there aren't content. Sponsors don't seem to care about that so much, uh, at least in my experience. But again, there's going to be zero care if it's not explicit. So keep that in mind if that's important to you. Daily Detroit says... I know it's not technical in nature, but what are the most effective audience growth strategies over the years for you? Not looking for shortcuts, but where you found it's worth it to focus the time and hard work required. Jer is the person over at Daily Detroit who asked that. Well, my previous question talking about promoting the podcast, I haven't seen a lot of promotional strategies that really help it grow. The best thing to do is what I'm doing right now, talking to you, Jer or Daily Detroit or other people is I'm engaging with you. I'm talking to you. I'm answering your questions. I'm responding to things. Responding to things that listeners ask or say or feedback and comments is one of the best ways to do it. The other thing is getting those reviews. All of y'all, please review this show on iTunes. Everybody needs to be reviewing your favorite shows on iTunes and you need to be, you have need to have no shame in asking your listeners to review the show. Don't ask them every five seconds to do it, but once or twice a show, sure, because it's the best way to get the word out there. I told you in the last episode or two, how much of an impact this has had on a show we do about Star Trek Picard, the CBS uh, show that's, um, that's airing right now uh, about Captain Picard. Uh, we do that show, me and Hattie and Keith do that show every week. And we have been asking our listeners to leave ratings and leave reviews. It makes a huge difference. We went from one of many, many, many uh, Picard shows to being the most highly rated and reviewed show because we asked. So if you ask, that makes a big difference. And for growth strategies, it's still, it sucks, but it's still word of mouth and reviews. So Daily Detroit, good luck. 
don't don't have any qualms about asking your audience to rate, review, and share the show. James Shield asks, Zencaster, Cast, Ringer, Squadcast, what's the best option for reliable, simple, remote recording these days? Need locally recorded synced audio as quickly as possible after a call. Planning what to do on a daily interview podcast in the event we all have to work from home. And uh, he asked that five days ago. I have a feeling, James, you're probably working from home now, aren't you? Well, of the options that you listed, the ones that I have the most experience with and I will put into the show notes are Zencaster and uh, Ringer. Uh, and Zencaster is Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R and Ringer is R-I-N-G-R. So the one that I really recommend is Zencaster. It's the one that I've had the most experience with. It's the most straightforward. It's the easiest to use. It does just exactly what you expect it to do and uh, no more, no less. And basically the way that this works is everybody signs on to Zencaster. Uh, they all are going to be synchronized because the host, the person hosting it is essentially starting the recording. And what happens is the browsers record your audio right there in the browser. And then it is sent up to the Zencaster server combined and ready for you to download. You still get different tracks and everything like that. Uh, but it's a very, very simple way to do it. It's a little bit easier than having people record their own uh, own uh, double ender version. And it's a little bit less of a burden on people because they don't have to worry about using Skype recorder or, um, or audio hijack, things like that. So if you're looking for something like that, that's the one that I recommend. It's a pretty nice, simple, straightforward system, uh, a nice way to do it. Um, I'm also putting a link into uh, the show notes today. One of our listeners, whose name is Andy Polane, sent me a picture of his recording fort. And uh, it is, he, he has made a fort in his office by taking acoustic foam panels uh, and, uh, and putting them around his little workstation there. And uh, he says, um, the desk acoustic foam panels I can put away. And the one on the right is a big Marimekko print in a canvas stretcher with foam behind it. The ones on the wall built with rock wool in wood frames and nice fabric. Sound is blind, but I'm not. And uh, and basically, he has this stuff around it. You can look at the picture. It'll be in the show notes. It's a, a link to, to his tweet. Uh, and I actually love this. And I know a lot of people who have to have a setup that they can set up and then break down easily. You know, they don't have the luxury of being able to cover their walls like we do here in foam panels. So I'd be, I would love to see your podcast set up. So I'm going to call out to all of you. If you have a podcast set up, I want to see it. Send me a picture of your setup, whether it's a, a blanket thrown over your desk or a professional audio studio. Send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Benjamin with the hashtag podcast method. And uh, maybe I'll set up a gallery or something cool that we can do for these. But I would love, love, love to see your setup. All right. And now onto the final question, which is actually a series of questions, which is a little bit of a topic for today. And uh, I'm going to read the questions and then I'll give you a big answer. David Lyons says, what do you recommend for recording and post-processing? Clean files, then do it all in post? Effects applied to the recording as it's being recorded? At either time, what do you change? Normalization, de-esser, noise gate, etc. And he follows it up and said, uh, crucially, why do you do or not do certain things? And, uh, and he's talking about the noise gates and de-esser and other post-processing. 
Uh, related to this, Dwayne Diker says, can you talk about the difference between normalization and compression and how those are properly applied in GarageBand? And then Leston Lloyd says, is there a frequency waveform for vocals that you should aim for by tweaking the EQ? I'm more a visual person. Working with histograms and scopes in photos and videos still haven't got my head around what to change in order to make a voice sound better. These are great questions, and I'm going to try to answer them all, and I'm going to try to answer them all as a whole. There are two different philosophies when it comes to recording audio. There are some people who would say, do everything in post-production. Just record your straight audio and then in post, make it sound good. Then there's the more live philosophy, which is apply all or as much as possible of the audio editing, uh, audio filters that you need uh, on the live signal and record that. And if there's still something wrong with the audio, then you can edit it in post. I have done both of these things. I probably did the live version for the longest because almost all of my shows are live streamed. And so, uh, you know, you want to have the best audio quality that you can. I also do, when I'm working on videos, a lot of the time I will do live audio uh, uh, production so that it's recorded onto the video track and I don't have to go back and do anything with that video track later, which means I don't have to export the track and edit it, or rather not edit it, but do uh, do filters and things like that, and then re-import it back and sync it back up in Final Cut Pro or something. Uh, so I was a big fan of that. But to do that live, when you have those things being recorded live, that means you're using something like a DBX-286S, uh, which is gear that I've recommended a long time, or you're using something like um, one of Universal Audio's Apollo or the Arrow, where you can put these effects in line. And in those cases, what am I doing? Well, I'm doing uh, I'm doing compression, a deesser, and um, that's you know maybe a little bit of EQ. But those are pretty much all I do in effect anyway. If I'm doing post production, because I like for the voice, I like to use a really good microphone. If you can afford it, you should do the same. I like to use a really good preamp. If you can afford it, you should do the same. And if you have a good microphone going into a good preamp, your signal is going to be really, really good. And it's going to sound really, really good. You, you might still get a little bit of clipping if someone yells or something like that, but which of course, if you were doing inline compression, wouldn't happen. Uh, but I'm these days, uh, I'm not doing a lot of that stuff in line. Like I'm not doing anything in line right now because I'm going in through the Focusrite, which is the uh, 18i8. Uh, the Focusrite, really a great company. The Scarlet, really a great line of products. Uh, depending on how many mic inputs you need, there's going to be one for you there. And I recommend those. They're really great. I will put a, a link to the Focusrite website and to the products that I use in the show notes as well. Uh, even though I did it last week, I'll put it in again. As far as what I am actually changing... Uh, and this this gets to both Dwayne's question and David Lyon's question uh, directly. Um, specifically, compression, de-esser, and some EQ. Those are the main things that everyone should be doing. And uh, de-esser, well, it removes the S sound from being so harsh. That's that's a very important thing. And everyone should have a de-esser in their post because... Every microphone out there picks up the S sound too much and you need to minimize that. So a de-esser, very important. In addition to a de-esser, I like to use a noise gate. 
Uh, think of it like a real life gate. If the gate is closed, something can't get through, right? And you're only going to open the gate for certain things. Well, if you are speaking, your voice is going to be loud enough to go through that noise gate and get recorded. But if there is a sound that is not loud enough to get through that threshold, it won't be recorded. So that can really, really help if, for example, there's, you might be typing a note in the background or um, your neighbor's dog barks or something. If those sounds are not loud enough to be picked up on your track through that noise gate, then they won't even get recorded. Or if it's recorded and you're doing this in post, they'll get filtered out. The noise gate says, that's not loud enough. I'm just muting you. Um, I'm always confused by people who split up their audio tracks to remove silence. And then you wind up with a track that's split into a thousand different pieces. That makes editing an absolute nightmare. Don't do that. Don't use tools to do that. It's insanity. Just use a noise gate. Noise gate has the same thing. And you're left with one beautiful single track. That's easy to edit and easy to move. And of course, now we get into talking about normalization versus compression. And that is Dwayne's question. And uh, there is a huge difference between normalization and compression. They're very, very different. Um, it's hard to explain, though, what the difference is, but I'll do my best. Normalizing, this is something that is going to amplify all of the audio that you have on a track. I'm talking about individual tracks for this. But you can normalize all tracks as a whole, too. But what it's doing is it's amplifying the audio and making the audio bigger in proportion to the, the audio that you've recorded. So if you're looking at a wave pattern, the wave pattern, the waveform is going to keep the same shape, but you're kind of be making it beefier, if that makes sense. Everything gets a little fatter. And that sounds good, but that's not always what you want. Now, compression takes all of the frequencies that you have and chops them off at a certain point. And you can set this threshold, this point, so that nothing is ever going to be louder than the level that you've chosen. It's as opposed to fattening it up, it's squeezing it down. So with compression, it's going to take it's going to smooth out the overall playback so that you don't have any peaks, anything that's really loud. Normalizing doesn't do that. You're still going to have tons of spikes and peaks in it. Um, so what compression also does is it brings up some of the quieter sounds as well. It's, its goal is to have a consistent volume or, or, or level for the entire recording of that track so that you won't have when the person gets excited and talks louder, it won't sound louder to the person listening. And when they talk more quietly, it won't sound quite as quiet. It's, it's, it's making it compressed, right? It's leveling everything off to ensure consistency. Normalizing is more increasing the volume of that particular area. I recommend never to use normalization. I've never normalized a single podcast episode that I've done ever. I've been making podcasts since 2006. 
I've done thousands and thousands of podcasts and I started doing it full time in 2008 and I was, I've recorded thousands and thousands of episodes, never once used normalization. Compression, I don't think I've ever not used compression because what you're trying to provide is a consistent level for every person that you're talking to for your audience. And I do this by hand. So anyway, that's what I do. My recommendation is don't do too much normalization. If you wanted to normalize after you've compressed and you are normalizing the exported track, in other words, everybody's individually EQ'd, everybody has their own individual noise gate, and yeah, you've got to tweak and set those per track. It's not a universal thing. It's per track. And you've compressed individually per track and you want to normalize the end result of all of those tracks together, go for it. Have fun. I don't think you'll need it. But that's the order that you want to do it in. And, uh, and, and if you disagree with me, I would love to learn. That's the wonderful thing about audio is I sure don't know all of the answers. And I'm not always right about it. And if you've heard that and you've said, Dan, you're completely wrong. Here's what I do. Please share it. I want to hear it. Go to podcastmethod.fm, click contact and, and share with me what you do and why. I would love to learn about it if it's different. And to kind of answer Leston's question, is there something visually that you want to look at? in the? No, I never look at the waveforms. The only time I look at the waveforms is if I have to do an edit and I have to catch it in between a word or something like that. I'm fine using those peaks and valleys to help me identify it. I use the waveform to line up my remote recording that somebody is giving me when I'm co- when I'm co-hosting a show with someone to the locally recorded version that I've captured over Skype or Audio Hijack, uh, and and I use it to visually line them up. But I am not doing looking at waveforms much visually to do the editing. Why? Because I am listening. It doesn't matter how it looks, and you can't really judge now when you're setting up an eq yeah of course you've got to look at the eq and the way that they're uh, being eq'd because you have to raise and lower those different values but generally speaking i'm not spending a lot of time doing that i'm relying a lot more on compression and de-essing and things like that to make it sound good but listen less than i know you're a visual guy you're gonna have to become an audio guy now you have to listen and so here's what you do Pick your favorite show, the podcast that you think sounds the best. Pick it. Maybe it's this show. Maybe it's Radiolab. Maybe it's something else. Listen to that show and then go back to your own audio and listen to your own show and tweak it to make it sound. Obviously, your voice is not going to sound like Jad Abenrod's voice. It's not going to sound like my voice. But whatever it is about the way that voice sounds, make yours sound like that and just mess around. You only have to do it once. You're only going to have to come up with the EQ if you're talking on the same microphone every time and your host is on the same, co-host is on the same microphone every time. You're only going to need to come up with that EQ and noise gate and compression setting once. Uh, I have on my list of videos to make one about compression and EQ and how to get really good values for that. But again, that's a very, you're a visual guy. That's a visual thing. I have to show you how to do that in logic. It's much harder to discuss it. But I will refer back to 
uh, to a podcast method episode, one of the very early ones that I did, which I'll put into the show notes as part of season one, where I talk about compression um, and, uh, and, and I have an audio engineer on with me talking about it. So I'll put that into the show notes too. But I hope that that answers y'all's questions. I need your questions to keep the show interesting. So send them to me. If you want to ask me on Twitter, use the hashtag podcast method. Otherwise, go to podcastmethod.fm and click contact and I will answer them on the show. And again, thanks to everybody who is supporting the show. This is how I make a living. This is not a hobby. This is my job. And your support is the only way that I currently make money from this show. So go to patreon.com slash podcast method. Support me there. You'll have some really cool bonus content coming out soon. And I thank you so much for your support and for listening. And I'll see you next week.